All right, well, this morning we begin a new series. We finished our Reformation Starter Kit last week, and there was perhaps a few other things I could have taught. I thought about perhaps adding a lesson on the inspiration of Scripture and the authority of Scripture, but I just did that entire series on the English translation, and we pretty much covered that. So I didn't do that again. Um, and so we'll, we'll wrap it up with that. But today we're going to begin a new series on everyone's favorite topic, and that is wine, alcohol, beer, bourbon, spirits, and various uh, and a sundry libations. Right. <laughs> I was looking for that word. All right. And so just to begin this particular topic, um, this topic has been controversial in the church and in America for over 100 years, coming up on about 200 years. We have, in fact, a founding father that was a leader in the prohibitionist movement, one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. And so this has been an issue that has been um, you know, hotly debated and emotional and divisive for many years. In fact, in, in my research, I, I've seen that some people even elevate this issue above the importance of the Trinity or the nature of justification by grace through faith, making this particular issue a, a test of fellowship. Y'all know what a test of fellowship is? A test of fellowship is a litmus test for who you hang out with and who you think is a Christian, and who you're willing to take the Lord's Supper with. And so um, every pot, everyone has certain, certain tests of fellowship, and, uh, and many people have this particular issue as a test of fellowship. Um, many believe that if you do drink, you probably aren't a Christian, and many also believe that if you don't drink, you might not be a Christian. You might be one of them legalistic Pharisees. And uh, I'm hoping, though, that through teaching what the Bible says with the power of the Holy Spirit and the peace that the Holy Spirit produces in our hearts, that we can, in fact, at the end of this, be more united. And not that we're divided over this issue, really, but, you know, just in case in the future an issue like this proves to test our unity, we'll have already laid down some solid foundations in the Bible and uh, something we can uh, unify around. Make sense? So it should be fun. You know that I, I, I do a lot of these lessons for you guys, but you guys, you know, you're, you're the VIPs. You know, you, you already pretty much know everything that I'm going to say, but I do teach these lessons so that they can go into our church library, our church database for the future so that we have sort of a, a foundation laid for the next generation, a doctrinal foundation, which is the most important foundation to lay. And so part of this I'm going to say I know you don't necessarily need to hear but I want future uh, Christchurch members to be able to hear it. And so, um, the Word of God, of course, and I'm not going to go into this, is authoritative over all of life. We agree with that. Amen? Amen? And so, the question is not, how does this make you feel? And, and please, um, don't, if you do feel a certain way about this particular topic, I would ask you to not aim those feelings at me personally, but actually to recognize that it's the topic that's causing you to feel that way. It's not me, personally. And I'll do my best not to trigger any um, unwanted emotions. But we want to align our, our, our beliefs with not our emotions and not with our culture, right? And not with tradition, but with the explicit text of Scripture. 
Of course, the scripture has a lot to say about this topic, and you're, gonna, you're actually, I think, going to be surprised at how much the Bible has to say about this. And I think we will all be encouraged, comforted, and perhaps even rebuked and at least admonished, which means you're warned about potential hazards. I think all of those things will happen for all of us. So let's get into this. First of all, there are three views in the modern church. They are the prohibitionist view, the abstentionist view, and the moderationist view. Uh, the prohibitionists believe that drinking of alcohol in any way, shape, or form is explicitly condemned in Scripture, that alcohol is not fit for human consumption, that it is a sin to drink, perhaps even in mouthwash, but certainly in wine and strong drinks such as bourbon, and that if you do, if you do drink, you might not be a Christian, and uh, any preacher who teaches even the moderation, even moderate drinking, should be marked and avoided. That's the prohibitionist position. And uh, there are Christians who have been prohibitionists for 200 years. It is a historic position, and, um, and that's one of them. The other one is the abstentionist position, and that is that although the Bible doesn't necessarily condemn the drinking of alcohol, wisdom would state that you should totally abstain. Why? Because the world is really bad right now and morals are loose and it's very available and technology has been able to increase its potency. So out of love and out of wisdom, you should, we should all voluntarily forego it altogether. That's the abstentionist position, right? Raise your hand if you know some abstentionists, right? Now, to be someone who abstains is not the same thing as an abstentionist, Okay, so be careful with that. My dad abstains because he just never drank. And his, uh, his dad was an alcoholic, and so he grew up with kind of like a bad taste of it. And, and he's not like a super social guy. He doesn't hang out with a lot of people. He loves one-on-one -on -one conversations or leading a group of people into the wilderness hiking. He's just never got into it. And he's never, he doesn't have a problem with it. He, he drank, you know, he'll drink here and there on vacation when my sister makes him a pina colada. But, uh, but he basically abstains, but he's not an abstentionist. So you have to make sure you know the difference there. And, and any one of us might choose to abstain for a season of time. What's that called? Fasting. fasting, that's right. And the Bible even talks about fasting from sex, fasting from food, fasting from alcohol, all three of which the Bible compares with each other. Sex, uh, food, and alcohol are oftentimes compared in Scripture, along with lust, gluttony or fornication gluttony and drunkenness these are these are parallel topics in scripture and so you you might fast from it and so you are therefore abstaining for a while and that can be wise and and uh, and whatnot but that's not the same thing as being an abstentionist an abstentionist believes that everyone should abstain all the time as a corporate communal tactic because of how bad the world is and because of the dangers of it and then there's the moderationist view, and that is that the Bible doesn't condemn the use of alcohol, but condemns the abuse of alcohol, and that um, God gives it to us, and if we are receiving it with thanksgiving and moderation and maturity, then it's not only fine, but it's good to drink, right? The moderationists also believe, and we'll look at all of this, that God commands it to be used in worship sacramentally, and that God commands it and encourages its use medicinally as well. And so that's the moderationist view. That's the view that I take, and um, that's the view I'm going to try to uh, 
convince everyone in the church of so that we can have unity. Um, and of course, if you, if you are a prohibitionist or an abstentionist, we all love each other. Amen? All right. <laughs> so why is this important? Wouldn't it be more expedient, more politically correct for pastors to avoid this topic altogether? I think nine out of ten pastors would say yes. Um, either preach total abstinence and the dangers of it, or don't say anything about it. You know, most preachers that I know drink beer, do not do it publicly, and never talk about it. And, and so what ends up happening is they do it alone at their house, and they do it with non-Christians, or they do it when they're on vacation. And so this, uh, this particular thing is not something that is aired in public in the community. And the, and the kids very often grow up with no tools to help equip them with something that can be very dangerous. Um, and that, of course, is the, that approach is what I, I typically would call the fundamentalist approach or the separatist approach. And I don't think it's healthy for a church. I don't think it's good for our, the next generation. And, and those people very often don't talk about sexual sins in public. They shelter their kids from anything that is bad or dirty or naughty in the world. And, uh, and they certainly don't preach against gluttony often, if ever. And I think that's bad. If you raise your kids in a bubble, the first time they get out, they're going to die from a common cold. Um, we, we need to inoculate our children by teaching them how to handle things. We, we teach our little children how to handle a pocket knife, right? We don't give them a gun when they're five, but we give them a pocket knife, right? And, uh, and we don't give them a social media when they're three, or six, we give them social media after they've been trained and, and when they're ready for it. And the same thing with sex, alcohol, and, uh, and even f certain types of foods and whatnot. Some kids just aren't ready. And in fact, some adults aren't ready. And that's a maturity position. But this is important, I think, because we need to talk about it, to build unity, to prepare the next generation, right? Um, to also make sure that as a community, we are not in any danger of being burned by fire, right? And or any danger of legalism or pharisaicalism. Um, there's a lot of reasons why it's important. Let me give you a verse on this. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. And, and y'all thank Kevin for these verses because I, there's a lot of them today. So we're going to go through them quick. Um, he had to wake up at four this morning to put them all in. Hopefully it wasn't that bad. But, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Amen? Colossians 3.17. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Everything should be done to the glory of God. And so we want to know about this particular thing that we do or don't do, and whether or not we're doing it to the glory of God. Plus, and I'll just rattle off some things, it affects your witness, either positively or negatively. And uh, just as a personal anecdote, as, a, as what I believe essentially a missionary to Acadiana that God called me to be, I chose very early in my ministry to intentionally drink in, per in public because I was not trying to grow the church by uh, attracting fundamentalists and separatists and teetotalers from other churches. I was trying to reach Cajuns. Catholic Cajuns. And I knew, because I was raised here, that just about every evangelical church was pastored by someone not from here, and they were filled with people not from here, uh, transplants, and with country accents, 
And so I knew growing up that I wanted to establish a Cajun, uh, a Lafayette, an Acadiana Reformed Church. Well, at least a biblical church. Later that became a Reformed Church. And, and, I, and I didn't want to encourage the teetotaling, the, the abstentionism, the fundamentalism, the legalism, and, and what I believe to be some, you know, just illogic uh, in the church early on. I wanted to drink in public to demonstrate um, what the gospel and the law of God has to say about that particular area of life. And so I made that decision early on, and, um, and that affected my witness. It certainly affected my witness negatively with church people. Um, but I, oftentimes there has been um, there has been many examples of how it affected my witness positively with non-church people, um, because a lot of people who aren't grown and aren't raised in church they they think of church people as fuddy-duddy legalists, etc. And I wanted to show them that God's good God's gifts are good, and so I, I can remember sitting in a church on a vacation um, just down the road from here, and the pastor preached on. He's basically saying, look, I know y'all all drink, but just don't do it in public. <laughs> that was the sermon. It, it was nowhere in Scripture at all. This is, he's just pure tradition. It was terrible, an abominable sermon. And obviously, I'm not going to say who this is, but, um, but I was sitting there. And like five or six times throughout the whole sermon, he's like, amen, Pastor Brandon? Like, I, you know, I don't know about you, but around here, we don't drink in public. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> I was like, I was the worst person to be there at that moment. Um, so, yeah, it does affect your witness, though. Uh, of course, if you're drunk in public, that's going to affect your witness, right? Absolutely. Not only your witness, but probably your budget, your uh, relationships at work, your profitability, your ability to be promoted, your church community, etc. And plus, why is this important? Because it's a very divisive issue in America. And so I think... At least laying out the logic of what the Bible says about it can help us to build some unity. Make sense? All right, the first thing we're going to talk about is the sin, though, the sin of drunkenness. That's the thing we're going to focus on at first, and then we'll, if we have time, we'll get into what the Old Testament says about it. So let's just go through this rather quickly, and, and Kevin, I'm not going to look at every single verse, but let's just start with Isaiah 28.1. Ah, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim. We covered this very um, extensively Wednesday night. So if you want a whole lesson on this particular chapter, you can download that. It's called Tables Filled with Vomit um, on the uh, sermon archives. And uh, we have one, the world filled with fruit, and then the next one is Tables Filled with Vomit, which I think those two chapters, they go well together. So the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim and the fading flower of its glorious beauty which is on the head of the rich valley of those overcome with wine. We see here that in God's rebuke of Israel, one of the sins that he lists is drunkenness. If you continue to read chapter 28, you see that the church itself had uh, entertained and began to be drunks, and their, and their flower was fading. Their, their greatness and their power was being diminished by their drunken, gluttonous, uh, perverted, sexually perverted lifestyles. Um, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Romans 13, 13. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Those things all go together, right? When you see large groups of people fighting and quarreling, 
and there's jealousy and envy and sexuality and, and immorality and sensuality and orgies. Those, all, those things go together. A community that has a drunk, drunkenness problem will eventually have a sexual immoral, immorality problem, a sensuality problem, and a strife uh, quarreling problem. Galatians 5.19 Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 6.10 I won't do this the whole time, I promise. Just making, I'm just making it obvious. Uh, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And uh, he goes on to say, and such were some of you, right? Such were some of you. And so seeing that that was characteristic of your old man, now that you're a Christian and you are a new creation, you don't want to give in to the, to the lifestyle of the old man. Amen? All right. But not only does the Bible condemn drunkenness, it also condemns uh, fellowship with drunkards, which would be unrepentant drunkards. Look at uh, Proverbs 23, 20. Be not among drunkards or among gluttonous eaters of meat. Is that the whole verse? That's close enough. But you can see here, not only are you not to be a glutton and a drunkard, you are not to fellowship with them. Matthew 24, 49. And begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards. He's condemning the faithless servant as uh, being with a bunch of drunkards all the time. 1 Corinthians 5.11 But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. So what does this mean? What if someone in Christ's church gets drunk? Well, we want to be forgiving and certainly not have uh, hatred in our heart or hold on to that, but what should the drunkard do? There should be repentance, confession, repentance. Hey, guys, you know, and I've, you know, I've received texts over the course of my ministry where, where people are saying, hey, you know, uh, sorry about that last night. That was, that was wrong. Um, and, uh, and I say, hey, you know, let's, Let's try to put some things into place so you, don't, so you don't do this. You know, maybe you need to do this, this, or this. Or, you know, there's, there's things. And uh, one, one, just real quick, by the way, one thing is don't drink drinks that other people make you if you are a buck 20. Just as a general rule, if you weigh 120 pounds, 130, 140, 90, don't drink drinks that people that are weigh 300 make, all right? Just a little, little bartending tip. All right, Brother Henry, you have no idea what I'm talking about, do you? You're good. Let's just, let me just tell you this. If you're 300 pounds, uh, one beer does not have the same effect on you if you're 85 pounds. And uh, so anyway. Um, but notice here in the passage, we are not to have fellowship with them. This is referring, of course, to unrepentant drunkards. Unrepentant drunkards. So it's, potential, it's possible that in a church that someone who is giving evidence of not being repentant and not making some changes about their drunkenness would eventually have to be uh, church disciplined and maybe even excommunicated from the church. The same thing would be true of someone who is uh, engaging in uh, immoral business practices, proving to be greedy or swindling people and frauding people or someone who is engaged in idolatry 
Like they can't stop going to Taylor Swift concerts and, uh, and they need to be rebuked for that, right? That's a real thing, by the way. Not in our church, but out there. And then let's move on to the curse of drunkenness on a society. Not only is drunkenness a sin, but drunkenness like sodomy, like um, having political leaders, which are children and infants and, and uh, imbeciles. This is a sign of a society being cursed, you understand what I mean? There's certain signs of a society being cursed. Our society is clearly being cursed, and you could know that for several reasons, but one of which is the, the people that we have ruling over us. That's one of the signs of a community being cursed. Another one is in, uh, skyrocketing inflation, overtaxation. These are all signs of a community being cursed by God because of their unrepentant sin. And uh, drunkenness is also a sign. And, and drunkenness is similar to sodomy as, as a sign because not only are the people who are doing it is a, is a sin, but God is not restraining them and he's taking his hand off them so that their society falls deeper and deeper into drunkenness. And, uh, and we see that, of course, in our society. Jeremiah 13, starting in verse 13. Then you shall say to them, thus says the Lord, behold, I will fill with drunkenness all the inhabitants of this land. And the first person he's going to fill with, with drunkenness are the kings who sit on David's throne, the priests, the prophets, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. You see there that it's not just the inhabitants and the leaders who are engaged in drunkenness. God is causing them to increase in drunkenness. He is taking away his restraining hand. Um, Proverbs chapter 23, verse 21 for the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty and slumber will clothe them with rags. You can see that drunkenness has a trajectory that you reap what you sow and God will not be mocked with that because it's a curse. Nahum chapter 1 starting in verse 9. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. So God uses stumbling drunkards um, as an illustration of judgment, of uh, burning up the fire, consuming the stubble, and they are like drunkards as they drink. Lamentation chapter 4, verse 21 and 22. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz, but to you also the cup shall pass, you shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. So God is causing their drunkenness to increase, and not only their drunkenness, but their shame and their sexual immorality that accompanies drunkenness often. Any thoughts on that? That's, yeah. It's pretty sobering, right? Pretty sobering, literally and figuratively. Let's go to the, uh, what the Bible has to say about escapism and the distortion of reality that drunkenness can cause. Uh, Proverbs 23, starting in 29. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without a cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine, those who go to try mixed wine. So you can see, go back to that other verse. You can see what happens with drunkenness. Woe. What is the woe? Anxiety, despair, misery, sorrow, fights, quarrels, strife, murmuring, complaining, bru <laughs> bruises, wounds without cause, you know, from passing out and busting your head on a coffee table, I suppose. Um, these are some of the, the, um, the effects of, of alcohol. Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 16 
They shall drink and stagger and be crazed. See, it, it, it messes with your mind so that you're out of touch with reality. And anyone who is, who is known a long-time alcoholic knows that they lose their grip on reality. Or anyone who is, has a drug addiction, they, they, are, they go crazy eventually. And, and sometimes they go crazy and don't ever come back. Um, Proverbs 31.6. Now notice this. This is a command. Give strong drink to the one who is perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. Now, why would you give wine? Strong drink, by the way, is, from what I can tell, what we think of as like bourbon. It was made from plums, dates, pomegranates, and grains of various sorts. Wine is referring to what we think of as wine. Right? So, but why would you give scotch to someone who is on death row or someone who is about to go to the, the hangman's noose or who is dying of a terminal disease? Why would you give wine to someone who is filled with bitter distress and anxiety? Why would you do that? It's a command. Yeah, it's, it's the same reason why we give morphine, right? Or any form of uh, medication or uh, antidepressants or anti-anxiety pills, which I'm 99% against. Because I don't think we really know what those things do. And there's a lot of evidence that they don't actually help um, and cause increasing problems. But I am in favor of the medicinal use of alcohol, which this is talking about here. So it is to be used medicinally. Why? Because it alters their perspective. It's changing their mind. They're, they are maybe, hey, let's just imagine, imagine they have an open flesh wound on a battlefield and you give them a bottle of bourbon so that they don't have to sit there in agony and pain and distress, right? That's good. That's good. But the altering of reality in other ways can be very dangerous. This is a very interesting, very uh, uh, important thing to think about. Someone who has suffered a, a loss and is, is in great distress or anxiety, um, it can be a medicinal it can be used medicinally, but look at um, Luke 21, 34. You've got to be careful with this, though, but watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap, seeing that, you see here, you should have some anxiety because the day of judgment is coming, but because your heart is so filled with alcohol, you're not in touch with reality, so you're not ready. So use it medicinally to help with anxiety, but you better make sure you still keep the real anxieties and not go too far with it, which is, I think, what the problem with anti-anxiety pills are, is they don't consider this. And so very often people who get addicted to anti-anxiety pills, they do so because they had some initial cause for major anxiety. And there are plenty of things that can, and I've, I've had uh, anxiety attacks in the middle of the night before. I'm not a, for, a foreigner to this issue but there are people who get on the anti-anxiety pills and you also notice that they no longer care about paying the bills, right? <laughs> and, and that is a spiral you don't want to go down. You know, take the edge off, but don't go totally out of touch with reality. That's also the problem, I think, with marijuana is that it doesn't consider this particular verse, at least not yet the, what we have as far as the development of marijuana. There isn't, from what I can tell, a way to heed the Proverbs passage in the use of it medicinally and, not, and also heed the warning of uh, completely going out of touch with reality. If you have an open wound and you're in pain, 
cut the edge off, but you need to make sure you're still aware to some extent that you have an open wound or you will die, okay? Any questions on that? So you can see, you see here, I'm, I'm showing you once again, I'm showing the Bible condemns the abuse of it, but not the use of it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You just stand here and keep an eye on me. Make sure I don't say anything to you know, embarrass myself. All right. On effects to ambition and vocation, look at this. Jeremiah 13, 13. Then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will fill with drunkenness all the inhabitants of the land, the kings who sit on David's throne, the priests, the prophets, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The Bible in this passage and many other passages has particular rules for when judges sit in judgment, when pastors uh, sit in, uh, preach and teach, or when they, uh, elders rule, um, when kings are doing their jobs or generals leading in battle. That's when you're not supposed to be drinking. You have to be on your, on your A game. And so when we extract from that, we can see not only that, but other passages that it has an impact on your vocational success. Understand? Look at um, Proverbs 31, 4 and 5. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. You see, you... Woe to those who are heroes of drinking wine and valium in and mixing strong drink who acquit the guilty for a bribe. You see the correlation there between drunkenness and being a bad judge and deprive the innocent of his right. All right? So it, it has a vocational impact. And you know people who are addicted to drugs or addicted to alcohol, their job begins to falter. That is also one of the things I, I, I think are a problem with uh, antidepressants and anti-anxiety and marijuana is that it has an increased impact on your vocational abilities, whereas the moderate drinking of alcohol uh, can be good uh, for taking the edge off, as we saw, but if, if continued and Im imbibed in too much, you can, it can make you really bad at your job, not to mention strip you of ambition. And, and the proper anxieties which drive you during the day. Ecclesiastes 10.17 Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. See that right there? There's a way to do it at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. And if you have a bunch of drunk rulers, which I'm sure we do. I've heard many testimonies of the drunken, sexual, perverted orgies that take place on the other side of the beltway. Um, we are uh, in, in big trouble because of that. Um, Proverbs 23, 20. Be not among drunkards or among gluttonous eaters of meat. You have the rest of that? No, nah, it's, it's all right. We got it. I need to move quicker here. On the social ramification, are, are you are you going out of your minds with all these Bible verses? You're good? Hopefully you're noticing the Bible has a lot to say about this. And I, I am kind of shotgun blasting you here. I'm sorry about that. 2 Corinthians 8.2 For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of gener generosity on their part. Mm, nah, I got the wrong passage there. Moving on. Well, the passage I was looking for is basically uh, drunkenness has social ramifications. It affects your relationships. Well, there you go. Fighting, complaining, murmuring, right? Um, 
it, of course, I, don't have, I, don't, I didn't list all the Bible verses, but of course our bodies are, are given to us as a stewardship, right? And so while there's no evidence from what I can see that alcohol, period, is bad for your health, overindulgence of anything, especially alcohol, is bad for your health. And as Christians, we should want to be prosperous. And one of the aspects of prosperity is not just wealth, but also health. God wants us to be healthy, generally speaking. Um, it affects your morals. Lamentations 4.21. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz. But to you also the cup shall pass. You shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. You can see, and there's many verses that show the connection between drunkenness and sexual immorality, etc. So, okay, that's it. That's it with the onslaught of Bible verses. But I wanted to do that just so no one could dare say that I am condoning drunkenness. No, of course not. That would not be a logical or a fair um, pushback against what I'm teaching. And, but neither does the Bible condemn uh, the use of alcohol. It condemns the abuse of alcohol. Amen. So um, Christians have to be consistent and they have to be logical at this particular point. And if, if we are to say that the Bible, that we, that Alcohol should be completely off limits because of the potential dangers. We would, to be consistent, have to say the same exact thing about food and sex. And, uh, and the way to fight lust and gluttony is not um, taking vows of celibacy or taking, uh, you know, poverty, uh, what's that called? A poverty strike or a hunger strike. The Bible says that those sorts of ascetic um, rejection of God's good gifts do very little to help you with your spirituality. The key in the Christian life is, is not to run from fire, but to learn with maturity how to handle it and to keep it in the hearth, in the fireplace. That's the key. So it's clear, as we've seen, that the Bible forbids the misuse of alcohol, but, does not, but the Bible does not... Um, condemn the use of alcohol. In fact, it encourages it for medicinal purposes, as we saw, and it also encourages it for sacramental purposes, which we will soon see, and, um, and also demands that it be done moderately. Amen? All right. We don't really have any more time. Man. All right. Okay, well, any questions? Next week, we will get into the, 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 the Hebrew words for wine, strong drink, and new wine in, in the Old Testament and, uh, and see specifically what the Bible has to say about that. Um, Marley. Yes. Yes. And I will show that explicitly next week because the, the Hebrew word, yayim, um, that's one of them, is the word wine. And, uh, and throughout the Old Testament, wine and strong, strong drink were to be tithed, were to be offered in offerings. The Levites took a portion of those particular offerings. And, uh, and so if words mean words, then yes, that's right. Good question. Any other questions? There's got to be some more, huh? Hopefully when we go through the study, I will be able to tell you explicitly what is moderation. But I probably not. You know, the Bible do doesn't always 
give us that clear of a definition. You know, it gives us political principles, but nowhere in the Bible does it say specifically who to vote for. We, we have to come alongside, we have to participate in sanctification, participate in the Christian life. And so I don't, I don't think that I'll be able to, to say explicitly what is moderation, but, um, but maybe, we'll see. Maybe I'll get a better, more clear answer on that. I get to study all week about it, so yay. <laughs> all right, well, there's a lot more to say. And I don't know if we'll even get to all of these things in this particular lesson because I've talked about all of these things in other lessons. But there is a lot to say about maturity, right? Maturity and whether or not someone is ready. There's a lot to say about wisdom and the proper timing, right? And the proper amount and the proper occasion. There's a lot to say about um, the weak consciences of other people. And the difference between someone with a weak conscience and a Pharisee who is trying to tyrannize everyone around them. And that's a different thing. Okay, Pharisees are not ever going to be talked into drinking. The fact that they don't drink gives them a sense of self-righteousness over you. They're not going to step off that moral high ground. There's a difference between a Pharisee and someone with a weak conscience. And how do we respond to Pharisees, like Jesus, who was constantly attacked by the Pharisees? What were the nicknames? What, what did they call him? A drunkard and a glutton and a friend of drunkards and gluttons, clearly violating all the passages we just, we just talked about. But what did Jesus do in response to the Pharisees? Did he get a beer fridge and hide it? No. He, from what I can tell, did it right in their faces. Um, and, but that's different than the way you respond to someone who has a weak conscience. Like, for example, if a Hindu became a Christian in our church and just couldn't bear the sight or the idea of eating meat, there's a certain way to deal with that person at a barbecue, right? <laughs> right? That doesn't mean we don't get to have barbecues. It doesn't mean that the whole church has to be a vegetarian because that's not biblical. This person's conscience is weak and not aligned with the scripture. But we probably need to wait for the Holy Spirit and not try to shove ground beef down his, down his throat, right? <laughs> Even if we know we're right. So there's, there's ways to deal with weaker brothers. There's a lot to talk about with that. There's spiritual liberty. What does that mean? Uh, drinking in community. What are the ramifications of, of drinking in a community? Like we are a church that actually knows each other. This is not an audience-driven church. You are not a, an aggregation of individuals that come for a, Saturday, a Sunday morning worship experience. And then you go back to your actual communities. Like many of you don't have any friends outside of this church. Like this is our town. This is our little town. And so we got to learn how to deal with this as a community. So there's a lot to say about that. Um, there's a lot to say about bartending one another. And I said this on Wednesday night, but what was the traditional purpose of a bartender? To cut people off, right? To tend like a shepherd the bar. The point of a bartender today is to make as much money as possible. But historically, um, Christians went to bars. They went to pubs. You, you know the stories of J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis in pubs, Martin Luther in pubs, Calvin in pubs. Christians went to pubs. 
Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that, one of which they, didn't, they hadn't yet manufactured, mass manufactured the ability to bottle and to can. And so there's a lot of reasons for that. Now people can drink at home because of the technology. But back then, if you wanted to drink, you had to go to an establishment and, and hang with your friends. And, and there was a bartender who tended people who shepherded people. There's a lot to say about how individuals in a church need to tend one another, need to care for one another, need to hold people accountable, right? Um, it's, it's not ideal for all of us to hide in our, in, our, in our houses and pretend like we don't drink alcohol. What's biblical is to see what the Bible has to say about it, take care of each other, and tend one another, and perhaps, um, you know, make sure that some people don't drink because they need to go back to Juicy Juice because they're not mature enough yet. So we bring them juice boxes because they're not mature enough yet. Hey, and, and, or we might say, hey, look, we need to have a fast. We got to be able to tend one another. Isn't this true about sex? Wouldn't if someone was having a sexual affair, other people in the church tend them, deal with it? If someone has a porn addiction, what do we do? We deal with it. We tend to it. We cause repentance. We get counseling. This, it, we must do this with all the, the, the dangers of life and all the things of life, not a... Not, pretend like we live in some alternate reality. Um, there's a lot to say about the false gospel of abstinence, which Paul talks about in 1 Timothy chapter 4, as opposed to fasting. There's a lot to say, but today what I wanted to just simply give you is the logic of it all. The Bible condemns drunkenness, but not the use. The Bible condemns the abuse, not the use. Amen. Y'all have a great Lord's Day.